Um, as a church, we've been walking through the book of John. Walking through the book of John, we are in John chapter 4. And this is the second part sermon of a two-part sermon on John 4, 1 through 42. 1 through 42. And uh, we only have five more parts to go on this sermon. Just kidding. Uh, this is the second part sermon of uh, the, the section walking through the, the story of the woman at the well. And... Um, how Jesus offered to the woman at the well living water, and that living water was himself. And so now we come before, um, before the Word, and we see uh, how the, the Lord interacts with his disciples after this event and what that teaches us, and uh, teaches us how we might share in his joy. So if you'll look with me in uh, John chapter 4, and I'll, I'm going to read verses 31 through 42, and then we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it for... A little while. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the word world. Let's pray one more time. Father in heaven, pray that you would make your word um, clear to us. You'd help us to obey it. Father, I pray that you would penetrate this message deep into our hearts, not only so that we would obey it, so that we would want to obey it. So we pray for all these things in the name of your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Um, There's a great book in my office, and I know exactly where it should be, and I went to look for it so I could quote it directly. Um, but I couldn't find it, so you're just going to have to trust me this morning that I have read this book um, by Max Stiles, and it's a, a little red book, and the title of the book is Evangelism, and the title of the book is what the book is about. And uh, he describes how um, oftentimes when Christians, they go to share the good news of Jesus Christ, um, they will, it will build up like a volcano until they're talking to someone who doesn't know them, and then they just can't help themselves, and they evangelize all over somebody. And I think for many of us, that is, that is how we think of evangelism. We think of sharing the gospel as, I know I should do it. I know I should do it. I know I, okay, there's somebody here. There's an unbeliever, the first one I see. Here you go. And, uh, and I, I, I know that it takes, a lot of, um, it takes a lot of courage to do that. And I know that even now, as I hear the word evangelism, some of you are tensing up in your seat and you are preparing yourself, you're stealing yourself for another, another guilt-driven sermon on evangelism. Um, you're 
preparing yourself for another guilt-driven sermon on how to share the gospel of grace. And I want to... So normally when I uh, preach, you guys know, I, I do most of my applications at the back end, and I'm still going to do that this morning, but... I'm going to tell you my main application this morning at the front end, and I'm going to spend most of my sermon telling us why we should do it. My goal is to convince you uh, why you should do it using biblical motivation, because this biblical motivation, I think we will see, um, it will lead to joy. So here is, my, here is my big application. If you write this down and you obey it, that's good. It is go share Christ. Go share Christ. And the question is Why? Why should we share Christ? Why should we share Christ again and again? Why should we share? Maybe because maybe we've shared him a lot. Maybe we just haven't ever seen somebody come to the Lord. And we, wonder, we want to know, is it even worth it? Does it even matter? And I want to convince you this morning that it does indeed matter and that it is a source of life for the Christian. It's a good thing and not a bad thing. So um, here's my outline this morning. Here's my outline this morning. I want to make sure I word this right. Uh, number one, obedience sustains. Obedience sustains. Number two, sharing in his joy. Sharing in his joy. And number three, an example for us. So obedience sustains, sharing in his joy, and an example for us. Obedience sustains. Now, where we left the disciples last week, Jesus was talking to this um, woman at the well, which is kind of a no-no in that culture. And, and so there's kind of this, um, the, the disciples come and they're afraid to ask Jesus why he's doing that, because even by this point, they've learned that stupid questions get harsh answers. And so they're just kind of sitting there hoping that, you know, just trying to understand what is going on. And this woman at the well, she goes back and she goes to the town. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and he says this in verse 31. Or the disciples say this. They say, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Rabbi, eat. And then Jesus responds to them. He says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Now, as we have seen up to this point in the Gospel of John, and we'll continue to see it, that there seems to be like an obtuseness, a uh, difficulty understanding the spiritual language Jesus uses. So we saw that with uh, Nicodemus, we saw that with the woman at the well, and we see that with the disciples here. So instead of the disciples saying, what, what do you mean by that? They say, has anyone brought him something to eat? They're just really confused. And, and you, you can almost, I, I like, when I hear verse 34, I think Jesus is saying this with like a little bit of a, a little bit of frustration, a little bit of a, a, a grin on his face. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So Jesus says that his will or his food, what sustains him is obedience. Obedience sustains. He, he believes, we see this a number of times throughout the book of John. So in John 5, 30, he says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And again, we'll see this in John 6, 38 through 44. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. You've got to think about this analogy of food. 
right? Most of the time we think we need to be sustained in order to obey, right? So we need to be sustained. We need uh, some kind of motivation. We need something to, to help us be able to endure throughout obedience. And what we see here is Jesus is saying, no, actually to obey the one who sent me, to do what he has given me to do, to, to uh, respond in obedience and in faith and in faithfulness actually sustains me. That the food that carries me through is obedience. And the question is why? Why is it that Jesus is sustained through obedience? Why is it that obeying God itself sustains us? Why is it that um, serving Him and doing what He's called us to do itself gives us um, a, a sense of satisfaction, a sense of accomplishment? And I think the answer for that is in verse um, 36, where it says, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. So the reason that obedience sustains Jesus is because of the joy that he receives on the other end. In other words, Jesus' motivation for obeying the Father is joy. Joy in doing what the Father has given him to do. And this is exactly, precisely why he obeyed unto death on the cross. It says this in Hebrews 12 too, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why does Jesus endure the cross? Why does Jesus obey? Why does he do? What is his motivation for serving the Lord? Among other things, it's joy. It's joy in God. It's, it's sharing the joy of God. It is rejoicing in the Lord. Uh, most of this sermon, most of the sermon is about evangelism. But if we don't start here, then I think the rest of it, I think, is lost. Because sharing in the joy of God, taking joy and being satisfied, ought to be the foundation for all Christian obedience. To see joy in God the Father glorifying His Son. To see joy in, uh, in spiritual growth. That ought to be why we pursue obedience. And so maybe you're here this morning. Maybe, you're, maybe your evangelism is the furthest thing from your mind. Maybe you're wrestling with a, a, a sin. And maybe there's something that is weighing you down in guilt. And you keep doing what you don't want to do. And maybe you need to have your motivation for your sanctification shifted. Maybe you need to learn to take joy in obedience. Joy ought to be the foundation for Christian obedience, the motivation for our discipleship and our sanctification. So Jesus kind of continues to expand specifically why it is that he gets joy in his Father's work and how that applies to this situation in verse 35. And here he explains what it means to share in the Father's joy. It says, Do not say... Uh, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. 
Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. Now Jesus is here. He's using an analogy. He's using an analogy about uh, what it looks like to share the gospel and to see fruit grow. And he he, um, likens it to growing a field. And in uh, Palestine, there are two growing seasons at this time. There's growing season for the wheat and the barley, two different harvests. And that's why it says for four months. I know some of you are like, four months. So there's there's two different growing seasons. And his whole point is that when when you see the fields white for harvest, when you see them ready to be harvested, then someone ought to go out and harvest. And, and, and so he's telling the disciples, look out at the fields. Look out at all the lost people. Look at how all the people who don't yet know the Lord, who are, who are lacking for true water, who are thirsty, and you have the opportunity to give them living water. And, and he says this, this is a joint effort. There's a division of labor here that he says in verse 37. It says, For here the saying holds true, One sows and another reaps. I tell you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. And so the disciples, he says, you guys get to be the ones who sow. There are others who reap, probably John the Baptist. I think this is true for us today as well. That oftentimes when we share the gospel, we're either sowing or reaping. If you've ever known someone who's come to the Lord after uh, uh, kind of suddenly, it wasn't suddenly that there was all this stuff that was happening in the back of their lives, in the back of their minds, in their, in their lifestyles, that the Lord was continually putting his word in front of most of these people. And, and so if you've ever shared the gospel and someone's responded, you get to be the one that reaps. Sounds a lot like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each, I planted Apollo's water, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God, uh, only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Now, just like the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John believes that God is sovereign over this whole process. That God is at work and God is the one who, who initiates faith and gives faith. So for example, we see this in just the Gospel of John. But to all who did receive him, John 1, who, all, who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of, the, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And again in John six seventy. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And in John 10, he says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and they know, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there shall be one flock, one shepherd. And in John 13, 18, he says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Again, in John 15, 16, uh, 15, 16 through 19, he says this, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So 
this scripture tells us that God is sovereign over this whole, whole process. And if you don't realize this, I've just set up a problem. Because if God is sovereign over this whole process, if God's the one who gives faith, if God's the one who makes the dead alive, why does he bother using us to share the gospel? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, if God could, uh, if, he has, he, if he has his own and he, just, he wants to uh, give them faith and he can, why doesn't he just do that? I mean, we are pretty bad at evangelism most of the time. At least I know I am. So why does he keep telling me, go and share the gospel? Go, go, go. Why would God want us to help? Because, I mean, he can just, he can just make faith come alive. So I, I want to give you, let me give you two things, two things about this. So a premise and then an answer. First off, we see in the scripture that God rejoices when the sinner repents. God rejoices when the sinner repents. When those who are lost are found, when those who are dead are alive, God rejoices. We see this in Luke 15. So he told them this parable, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. God rejoices when those who are lost are found. Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you don't know this God. Maybe you don't know the God of the Bible. Maybe you don't know the Father of Jesus. Maybe He's not your Savior. He could be. Maybe you're thinking, He would never want me. No, He would rejoice to have you. He would rejoice to see you become alive and to put your faith in Jesus. Father rejoices when those who are lost are found. Which means this. That was the premise. Here's the answer. The reason that God involves us in the process. The reason that God invites us to share the good news of His Son. The reason that God brings you and me into the process of going and making disciples of all the nations is so that we can share in his joy. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. God wants you to share the gospel with that coworker who just, just needs a good slap upside the head. God wants you to share the gospel with that one family member. God wants you to share the gospel with your kids and your parents and your siblings who don't know him. Why? So that you can share in his joy. 
The father says, I have more joy over one sinner who repents than over 99 who don't. And I want you to, too. And I want you to share in that joy. And I want you to rejoice with me. Why does God invite us to go into all the nations and even go with us as we share the gospel? so that we can share in his joy. Christians, this is not a guilt-driven vision for what it looks like to share the gospel. This is the pure generosity of the Father who holds out to us the same joy that he has and says, will you rejoice with me? Will you share the gospel? The foundation for all true obedience is joy. And therefore, the motivation that we should have as we go into all the nations, telling others about Jesus, inviting them to put their, na- their faith in him, Telling, uh, Martin Luther said that evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. is so that we can share in his joy. Christians, far too often, we have made do for joy that is shallow and fading and fickle. Where we make nice, polite conversation We talk about the weather and the patriots or whatever. When God says, you know, you could share the gospel and have joy. Christians, God wants us to share the good news of Christ so that we can share in his joy. And I believe he gives us an example of that as well. I believe he gives us an example of that in the Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman herself had come to know Jesus. And so the Samaritan woman goes into the town and tells the townspeople about about Jesus. And notice she shares three things. First, she shares her testimony. He says, he told me all that I ever did. And we saw again earlier in verse Um, In verse 29, it says, Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. She shares her testimony. She's not hiding anything. She's not hiding any, And she shares her testimony, but she also shares her Savior. We saw this above that she says, she says that, um, can this be the Christ? And later down, we'll see that the Samaritans believe that he is the Savior of the world. And therefore, I believe, based on this passage, She shares in his joy. She shares in his joy of sharing the gospel, of spreading the good news of Jesus Christ with those who are far so that they might be brought near. And notice here, too, the the movement of faith that the Samaritan townspeople go from believing because of the woman to believing for themselves. It says this, Many more believe because of his word. Um, 
then they will say, it is no longer because of you that we, the, of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Now, we all, everything that we believe always is based on the testimony of somebody else. Every now and then you'll hear somebody say, well, I, I just, somebody else told me that, and I never wondered about that. There's nothing that you believe to be true that you wasn't based, at least at first, on the testimony of what somebody else said. So it's not wrong to believe in Christ uh, because your parents told you to. I believe in Christ because I was told the good news, the good, good story. But that faith does need to become personal. It does need to become something that you own. It does need to become something that you adopt. It does need to move from being believing because of something somebody told you to believing on your own. Uh, Christians, that, that to believe is um, not only to believe based on the eyewitness testimony of somebody else, but to believe because, of, because we have come to know and believe because we've heard for ourselves that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And so, as we turn our eye to application, I just want to highlight that and ask you this question. Do you believe only because somebody else told you? Certainly, you will. anybody who believes anything about anything at all believes because somebody told them that. So I'm not questioning the validity of that. Do you believe only because of that, or do you believe because you've come to know him for yourself? Because he has satisfied your soul with living water. Because he has given you life and salvation. He's given you fruit for eternal life. In other words, is this faith your own? Have you put your faith in Christ? Have have you been like the woman at the well, robbed of all your pretense and all your shame and all your guilt and all your pain? Have you come to know this Savior for yourself? Number one. Number two, wherever you are at in this room, especially if the answer is no to the first question, but for all of us, we need to remember, God delights in our salvation. God delights. He rejoices when the lost are found. He rejoices when we turn from sin. He rejoices when we see him glorifying us with our lives. God delights in our salvation. Maybe you're here today and the way that you think of God is as some mean kid stamping out fire ants in the gravel. You think that's what he's doing to us here. And I'll just encourage you, that is not the picture of the God that we see in the Bible that the God that we see in the New Testament is the God, and in the Old, is the God who delights in repentance. I mean, he received back Nineveh. If you know anything about the the story and the history of Nineveh, how wicked and cruel they were, and God received their repentance and averted disaster from them. As imperfect as that repentance was, what makes you think he wouldn't receive yours? What makes you think he doesn't rejoice over ours? Christians, God rejoices in our salvation. Number three. Number three. The foundation for all obedience in the Christian life is joy. I think it's real. It's not the only motivation. I don't. 
I don't want to get that wrong. I think there are many good motivations for the Christian life, but I believe it is perhaps the primary one, that joy and the glory of God. And so if you're here and you're trying to kick a habit, and you know that you shouldn't do it, and you know you shouldn't talk that way, and you know you shouldn't be doing this thing or going to that website, and you're, you're trying to kick it, and, and you just are trying to white-knuckle it, and you're, you feel like you're living a double life, the way that works to kick that habit, to kick that sin, is to choose joy. Is to choose the joy that can be found in obedience. To endure the cross, despising the shame for the joy that is set out before us, just like our Savior. And if you are here, and you are suffering, and the weight of this fallen and broken world is on your shoulders like Atlas. And you just don't know if you can hold on for one more day. Choose joy. Choose joy. There is far more to be had holding on to Christ and losing the world than to gain the world and to forfeit your soul. Choose Christ. Choose joy. Number three, have confidence, have confidence that God is sovereign over the process of salvation. So oftentimes when we share the gospel, we think, I just got to say the exact right thing. I just, I just got to have the, the right thing to say and come up with the right argument and get the right aha uh-huh. God is the one who's sovereign over that. God is the one who uses the most unlikely of people. And God's the one who can use you to save someone who you never thought, never thought could be saved so that you can share in his joy. So have confidence. Which means, number four, I think, five. Thanks, Courtney. Went to the wrong kind of college for that. I keep telling you guys. Number five. We should earnestly pray for the lost. Because if God is sovereign over the process of salvation, then we should pray to the Lord of the harvest. And specifically, we should pray that God would bring the right people into their lives at the right time. Matthew 9 says this, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And notice he doesn't say, Go out into the harvest which he certainly could have said, but he says this, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We should all pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that he would send the right people at the right time and the right reasons. Which means, number six, that you should work your own field and not somebody else's. Or another way to say that is you should be content to share the gospel with the people the Lord has brought you into, uh, has brought into your life. Have you ever thought about this? That someone that you know who maybe doesn't know the Lord has had somebody praying for them that God would bring the right person into their life, share the gospel, and you might be that answer to that prayer. So you might be praying for your lost person and God says, I'm using you to go share the gospel. I put this person in your life for a reason. I put them in the cubicle next to yours. I did that on purpose, not just to annoy you. 
I put them in the lot next to yours. I had them by the house next to yours. I, I put them in the same family as you. Work your field and not somebody else's. Be confident and comfortable that the people that God has given you to share the gospel with need to hear what you have to say. And trust, trust that the Lord will not, will not forsake that. Number seven, I think, I don't know. Do not be discouraged. Do not be discouraged if it seems like someone is hard-hearted and stubborn. Don't be discouraged if it seems like their ears are stopped up. They just don't want to hear. God, if he is truly sovereign over the whole process, and he can, he, he can bring even those who are farthest away to faith, he can save the most unlikeliest of people, then that friend or family member that you have, I promise you, is not too far gone. And you never know the things that you say today, how they might end up receiving Christ, in part because of that years down the road. Uh, to give you one example, there was a, a grandmother... Uh, whose children really didn't seem to be very interested in the Lord, and so she dragged her grandchildren to Sunday school, and um, she shared the gospel with her, her her grandchildren. Her grandchildren did not seem to get that at all. Well, she she passed away, and many years later, her grandson, one of the children who she had brought to church, um, was serving in the military. There's bullets whizzing past him, and he thought, if I die... I really don't know what's going to happen to me. And he put his faith in the Lord. And if he hadn't, I wouldn't be here because that was my grandfather. My grandfather in World War II, not, went into World War II, not a Christian, came out a Christian. You never know how the Lord might, you never know how the Lord might use you. Many years down the road, even after you're dead and gone, it might use the legacy of your faithfulness tomorrow. So don't be discouraged if you just feel like you're planting seeds. That's okay. Because the Lord of the harvest can surely, just as surely as he put you there to plant seeds, put someone else there to reap it. And I, Whatever, this is my last application. You can just put last. There is more joy to be had joining the Lord in his harvest than out. There's more joy to be had joining the Lord in his harvest than out. Love the story of the prodigal son. Luke 15, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Prodigal son goes, uh, comes to his father, says, I wish you were dead, essentially. Takes his money, runs off into a far country, squanders it, brings shame and dishonor um, and disrepute onto his, uh, his family comes to an end of himself eating slop out of the pig's trough, which was probably the worst possible thing a first century Jew could have done. Comes, the scripture says he comes to an end of himself and feels like even the slaves in my parents' house have it better than I do. So you can imagine him. He's standing in front of the mirror. He's rehearsing the speech. He knows what he's supposed to say. He says, Father, he's kind of going, he's kind of rehearsing it as he's walking and getting the cadence and his father sees him running a long way off and runs out and takes him up in, my ar- up in his arms and puts a, puts a coat on him and puts a ring on him and throws a party for him. And his older brother, and again, I have brothers. I have proof this morning for you. 
comes, hears this din and the sound in the, in the town or in the, the house. And he goes and he asks, pulls the servant and says, what is going on? And the servant explains to him, your, your brother has come home and your father's thrown a party. And he's sitting outside pouting. And the father comes in to plead with him to come into the house. For this, your brother was dead and is now alive. He was lost and is now found. Christians, let us come into the house. Let's go into the harvest because the Lord of the harvest is with us even to the end of the age. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have not abandoned us, that you knew what you were doing when you put us in other people's lives. God, I thank you for this body who is so dear and sincere in sharing the gospel. I thank you for this body, how many people here are so faithful in sharing the word again and again, and maybe they feel discouraged that it just feels like they're not getting anywhere. Father, I pray that you would give them just a a foreshadow of the fruit of joy to come. Father, I pray for anyone here who is wrestling and struggling with a habitual sin. They just don't know how they're going to kick it. God, would you help them to choose joy? And Father, for all of us, pray that you would help us to be faithful to go into the fields, to go and to share in your joy and seeing those who are lost be found and those who are far be brought near. It's in the name of your Son, who is our joy, our living water, that we pray. Amen.